Well, as we continue to stand in the reading of God's Word out of respect and honor for that, I'll be reading from 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 1 through 16. Here the Apostle Paul is writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And he begins there say, Be imitators of me, as I am of Christ. Now I commend you, because you remember me and everything and maintain the traditions, even as I delivered them unto you. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. The head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head, but every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should be or cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or to shave her head, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head, because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman, and all things are from God. Judge for yourselves, is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it's a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory, for her hair is given to her for covering. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. Well, I invite you all to turn with me again in the Word of God to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. 1 Corinthians 11, we will be talking here, as we've been doing for a few weeks now, uh, on this whole idea of the foundation that God has laid in His Word about the role of men and women. And how is it that Paul and the other writers in the New Testament, but particularly Paul, how is it that they, what are they building on? They're building on this foundation, and that's what we're showing uh, this week and next. So as we look this morning at 1 Corinthians 11 and 14. So we're taking a break from our expositional study of the book of Ephesians. And now that we've come up to uh, Ephesians 5.22 and following, we've decided to stop and have this uh, short series. Or it's maybe not quite as short as I thought it was going to be. But uh, we still have probably, I think, uh, two more lessons after today. And, of course, you know how that goes with me. It could turn into six. But uh, we'll see how that goes. But... Uh, I want to talk about some of these issues, some of these passages that give us the, the foundation for the role of men and women in the church and home in particular. And then we will have a lesson on what do we, how do we think about the role of, of women outside of the home and church. And so in a couple of weeks, Lord willing, that's what we'll, one of the things that we'll take up and we'll talk about how do we think about that. 
So we're talking about building on the foundation, and I'm going to uh, refer back several times today even to what we talked about a few weeks ago, that foundation God laid in Genesis 1 and 2 about the role of men and women, and and we saw there the headship of the man, and then... Genesis 3, how that was distorted by this, by sin coming into the world in the fall. Uh, and then, so we're going to look at now, what does the New Testament do with these roles? Are the roles of men and women in the New Testament built on Jewish tradition? Are they maybe built on historical practices? Think about when Jesus was asked to weigh in on the topic, debated topic of divorce. You know, when is that okay? His questioners went way back. They went back to the laws that Moses had given to Israel. So did Jesus go that far back? Or did he maybe adopt a more modern approach? Well, it's none of the above. Jesus went further back than his questioners did. As he rebuked them for their hardness of heart and their abuse of Moses' teaching, Jesus went all the way back to the beginning. And he took his stand on God's original design in Genesis 1 and 2. We're going to see that Paul did the same thing. When he talks about the roles of men and women, we'll look today at 1 Corinthians 11, 1 Corinthians 14, and then next week, Lord willing, we'll look at 1 Timothy 2. And and we're going to see that what Paul does is he takes his stand on God's original design. He'll go all the way back to that for principles that we in the church are to build upon on that foundation. So we're going to see today that, and next week, that New Testament teaching about the roles of men and women, that teaching, that New Testament teaching is built upon God's original design. So the New Testament teaching, the doctrine that we have and the practices we have for the roles of men and women in the New Testament, these are built upon God's original design. So Jesus didn't stop short when he went back backward. He went all the way back. Nor did he come up with a novel approach, as so many folks would seem to like today. Our scripture today is going to cover this idea of head coverings. Now, we're not going to get to go into quite the detail uh, that we could go verse by verse through that as I normally would do. I've done that before uh, back in, I think it was 2009, and so that material has been printed out and, and put in the library here in the hall and uh, in a white notebook there. And there's I've also added some uh, supporting materials, uh, journal articles and things like that that talk about head coverings. So I'm not going to go into that kind of detail. I did it in, in you know, fast-paced in three lessons, three weeks last time I went through that. Today we're going to go even faster and cover not quite so much detail, but just enough so that you will know what our view here at the church is, what my, my understanding of this is, uh, also, and then 
um, what are some principles that we should take away from these passages about the roles of men and women? So we're talking about head coverings, and next week we're going to talk about what does it mean when Paul says that women should not teach or exert authority over a man, and then he, but he says that a woman shall be saved, or some say preserved, through the bearing of children. What does that mean? Okay, so we have a couple of uh, difficult passages in front of us these two weeks, but they're also fascinating to work through. And so I hope that you'll be able to stay with me as I take us fairly quickly through this and get a good understanding of what he's talking about here uh, and what should we take away. So I know some of you women and girls are maybe a little nervous. Okay, what, are we going to change the way we're doing things and things like that? So hang in there. 1 Corinthians 11 is important in our discussion in this series for two reasons. One, this topic of, of head coverings, should women wear head coverings in church, uh, it's bubbled up again, and it's now out there talked about a lot. And some of you have even come up and asked me about it because you're hearing people talking about that and saying, yes, we need to do that. Um, and and so it, with this renewed attention, and, and this is one of those things that comes up every so often. Uh, and we came up in our church back in 08, 09, and that's where that teaching came from uh, that I was talking about earlier. And now it's uh, coming up again, so we need to talk about it. But also, there are important principles here in 1 Corinthians 11 about the roles of men and women. Okay? And that's what we're trying to do in this study. So, 1 Corinthians has two main parts. So, as you go through and you analyze the book, you can see that it falls into two parts. The first part is where Paul is addressing reports that he's heard about them. And so, in 1 Corinthians 1.11, he wrote, For I have been informed concerning you, my brethren, by Chloe's people, that... And then he goes into the, the first of those reports, and then he works his way through those five different things that he's heard about them. Those are divisions, uh, a rebellious attitude toward Paul, extreme immorality, taking one another to court, and moral laxity. So, that's the first half of the book where he's addressing things that he's heard about that Chloe's people had said, okay, we have some problems here in Corinth. And yes, Corinth had a lot of problems. And, and so Paul is, is tackling some of those. But the second half of the book, what he does is he shifts gears in chapter 7, verse 1. So as you're reading through 1 Corinthians, you'll notice that when he gets to 7, 1, he says, Now, concerning the things about which you wrote. And so there's this structural marker, now. And it, it's saying that, okay, I'm shifting gears here, and I'm going to talk about some other things these are things, I'm going to answer questions from your letter. And so, I I see those as falling into two different categories. And I'm going to show you why I divide it the way I do. First, topics related to the Christian life, marriage and singleness, food sacrifice to idols, and head coverings, which is what we're going to talk about today. And then the, the other half of this part of the book Topics that are related to church life, the Lord's table, abuses of spiritual gifts, and the resurrection. 
So the reason I'm talking about that is because I want to try to show you what I, the way I understand this passage on head coverings and whether or not it's something that we should, do we do it in the church? Does it apply to today? So on. Well, in chapter 11, and the reason that I as I've, I went through this years ago, looking at the structure of the book and came to the conclusion that there's this division in this last half of the book, 7 through 16, there's a division here right in the middle of chapter 11. And that's where you have the, the Christian life issues and then church life issues. So look at eleven, seventeen, and 18 with me. And I'll show you what I'm talking about. So, you notice that uh, back in 11.2, Paul said, Now I praise you, you know, and then he talks about head coverings. Now here in verse 17, But in giving this instruction, what he's going to talk about, the Lord's Supper, but in giving this, I do not praise you. So there's a, already a, a structural contrast here we see. I don't praise you in this because you come together, that is, as a church, not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, and this is significant, when you come together as a church. So he's shifting gears here. He was talking about things that are just life outside of church. Now he's saying, when you come together as a church, and he says, I hear that divisions exist among you in a part. I believe it. So there's, there's a transition here where he's talking about things that or outside the church is Christian life in general, and then matters for inside the church, the first of those being the Lord's table, and there were abuses there. So, and I'm going to give you just real high level here of what, what, he's, what I think he's saying about head coverings, but I don't believe that head coverings, what Paul's talking about, applies then or now in the worship service. Okay. Almost always, when people are talking about head coverings, that is what we always think first, is that should women wear head coverings in the worship service? I think, in part, because of the way the book is structured, and what Paul now is talking about when he gets to Lord, the Lord's Supper, now he's talking about the church. But before, he wasn't talking about church life. Okay, So that's one reason why I don't think that he's talking about head coverings in church. And think, too, and we'll see next time, 1 Timothy 2, uh, when he's... Okay, so this head covering passage, you remember when Kevin read it, it's about praying and prophesying. Well, think prayer. 1 Timothy 2, who is it that are to be leading in prayer in the worship service? The men. Okay, he, he will say that, and we'll talk about that. Also, we're going to see when we get to chapter 14 in 1 Corinthians in just a bit... Paul says that women are not to speak in church. That is, in a leading manner. That would include prayer. Okay, so you see, I don't see, if when we look at this, not only from the structure, but from other passages that are related, that he can be talking about the church life here in the first part of chapter 11. So what he's talking about is women praying or prophesying in gatherings outside the worship service, okay? So whether it's a prayer meeting Wednesday night like we have or a small group meetings, for example. 
in that day, and they did. They met a lot. They would meet together in homes, and they would have smaller groups, and they would meet. And, and a lot of the church, especially the early church, they met every day. But every day was not the worship service, okay? The, the called meeting of the churches, we, we say, the assembly of the saints. So let me give you, uh, in a nutshell, my understanding of what head coverings are about. It's already said that it's not for in the worship service. Also, you'll hear people talk about it's cultural. Now, typically that comes from the feminist uh, side of things where they'll say that, well, that was cultural. You know, that's something they did back then and, you know, we don't need to do that today. today. Uh, Well, first of all, it really wasn't cultural back then. It wasn't a normal thing for them. Um, But it's not cultural for a better reason than that even. Paul bases his argument on divine order, creation, angels, and instinct. None of those are cultural. Okay, so let's read those passages, those verses. So 11, chapter 11, verse 3, first of all. But I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man, and the man is the head of a woman, and God is the head of Christ. So there you have in there, God is the head of Christ. There's a divine order there between God and Christ. And we're going to talk about that, what that means. But the divine order isn't cultural, okay? And then, verse 8, another reason he's explained. For man does not originate from woman, but woman from man. For indeed, man was not created for the woman's sake, but woman for the man's sake. So here's the second reason, second thing he bases his teaching on is, and he goes back to Genesis 1 and 2. And you remember we talked about that, that... The, the woman was created for the man, for example, um, and she originated from him. And so he's basing it on the creation order, the foundation that we're talking about that God has already laid in Genesis 1 and 2. And then verse 10, Therefore the woman ought to have a symbol or literally have authority on her head because of the angels. Okay, so angels, that's not cultural either. Okay, now what does that mean? I have no idea. And, no, and nobody else has any real idea either. We're all guessing, okay? We don't know what he means. We, we might guess at it, but we're not sure what he means by that, okay? But still, angels are not cultural. And then, in verses 14 and 15, it's based on instinct. He says, Does not even nature, that is instinct itself, teach you that if a man has long hair, it's a dishonor to him? Well, know that naturally, he says. But if a woman has long hair, it's a glory to her, for her hair is given to her for a covering. So you see, here are those things. There's that divine order. There's the, the creation order, the foundation. There are angels, and there's instinct. And that's what Paul bases his instruction on. Those None of those are cultural, okay? <clears throat> Another point. I don't believe that the covering is the woman's hair. A lot of people take that. A lot of conservatives in our circles, they take that view. And it's a very convenient view. And I would love to take that view because it's a whole lot easier. The only problem is exegetically, I don't think you can. Okay, and I'm just going to show you briefly. What he's talking about is that her hair, that we just read that uh, in verse 15, her hair is an example of her need for a covering. Okay, so... The, the, her hair is an example of it. It's not the actual covering. 
And in verses 4 through 6, and then in verse 13, when he's talking, what he's talking about there is something that the woman would have on her head that would actually end up covering her hair. And we could go into more detail about, you know, well, you know, she, she's going to do this, might as well just shave her head and, and that sort of thing. It, it's not the hair that, it, it's something that's actually going to, would cover her hair. Okay, but like I said, godly people hold that, and that's fine. And if that's your conviction, that's fine. Um, it's just I wanted to show you what, what I, how I understand this. <clears throat> so we, we said it doesn't belong in the worship service. Okay, fine. What about in prayer meetings and small groups? So should you ladies, if you're going to be part of the prayer meeting or small group or some Bible study like that where men are in, in present should you have your head covered okay and so does is that and in that day when they were praying and prophesying i think it did mean that that's exactly what it means so outside of the assembly if women are going to be praying out loud if they're going to be prophesying uh in that day they could and then some did it was this, they were to have their head covered, something that would, it's the Greek down from the head, something that would cover, not a little doily like some do, but it's actually covering the, you know, down from the head. That is what they were supposed to do. Okay, but does that apply today? I don't think so. I'm not sure why. Recently, and this you won't find in my study that's out there in the hall, uh, something I've, I've come to the conclusion more recently, and this is something, this issue, this passage is one of those that's just kind of always in the back of my mind. You know, it's like, you know, a splinter that you get, you know, in your foot and it just, you know, nags you, you know, but you can't get it out. And so every time, every step you take, it's out, 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 out. You know, it, that's what First Corinthians 11 is for me, okay? And I've wrestled with this for decades because it just has bugged me that I just, okay, I, I, this is what I believe but there's still, for me, some unanswered questions. Well, I, I feel better about it now because of this, okay? I might be wrong, but we'll see. I think when he's talking about praying here in 1 Corinthians 11, he's talking about praying in tongues, okay? Why do I believe that? Well, in 1 Corinthians, tongues and prophecy are paired together a lot. And if you go and read, especially through chapters 12 through 14, you see tongues and prophecy are the two main things he talks about. He has those paired. He mentions a few other things, but he really zeroes in on tongues and prophecy. And so it seems to me that that would fit here as well. And and there are a lot of things that really tie in with what he's going to say in chapter 14, for example. But also, in chapter 14, he seems to really elaborate on this idea of praying in tongues. So look over at chapter 14, verses 14 through 17. I'll show you what I mean. He says, First uh, Corinthians 14, 14, For if I pray in a tongue, that's what I'm talking about. So praying in another language that he does not know. He says, if I do that, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. And he's trying to correct the way they were handling tongues. Verse 15, what is the outcome then? I shall pray with the spirit, and I shall pray with the mind. I shall sing with the spirit, and I shall sing with the mind. You see how he's just, he's, and he's talking about tongues, okay? And it's prayer, 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 right? 
Verse 16, otherwise, if you bless in the spirit only again, praying in tongues, how will the one who fills the place of the ungifted say the amen at your giving of thanks again in praying in tongues, since he does not know what you are saying? For you're giving thanks well enough, but the other man's not edified. So as he's correcting them, he's he's talking about, and this is something apparently that they really were zeroing in on, talking about praying in tongues. Okay, and 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 so he says, okay, you you can pray with tongue and this this that you know, and he just keeps talking over and over again about that. And it sounds like he's got on his mind this idea of praying in tongues. And chapter eleven, it's not going to be very far before he gets there into chapter fourteen, and so his mind, I think that's what. Or what's on his mind. Now, here at GBC, we believe, along with you know most others in our circles, uh, that the gifts of tongues and prophecy ceased just as Paul said they would in 1 Corinthians 13.8. Okay? So, if, if I'm right that this is praying in tongues, and then, of course, the prophecy part, that's, you know, we, I don't think we have an issue there. If that is the case then this would not apply to us today because it had to do with praying in tongues and prophesying. So when women did that outside the assembly, they had to have their head covered. But today, I don't believe that they need to. Okay, so some of you are kind of, okay, right? You know, and even you men, it's like, okay, I'm going to have to tell my wife to do that and make her, okay, I don't want to go there, right? So... So what principles can we learn from 1 Corinthians 11? And so we're going to kind of jump in a little bit more to the text, look for some principles here. So this passage is important for our study because it says the man is the head of a woman. So we've been talking about male headship. We went back because he's going to do that in First or Ephesians 5.20. Five and following, or, or 22 and following, where he's going to say, you know, that the man is the head of the wife, so and she's to submit to him. And, and so we went back to Genesis 1 and 2. Here again, if this comes up, the man is the head of a woman. Head refers to authority, not source. Jesus is the head over all things. Remember, we, we talked about this issue, this term kephale, head, in Greek, back in chapter 1, verse 22 of Ephesians. Okay, So when it says that Jesus is the head over all things there, he will talk about Jesus as head of the church, but he broadens it and he says he's, he's the head over all things. Okay, And, and so that idea of head means authority. He has authority over all things. That is, everyone, everything. Okay? <clears throat> Evangelical feminists, you remember I've talked about them, they, they're they not the, the full-blown egalitarians who, uh, in, in what we usually mean when we talk about feminists, who say, we don't believe the Bible. I mean, you know, Jesus was wrong, Paul was wrong, we don't, you know, we don't go there. The evangelical feminists say, no, no, we, we hold to the Bible. We believe the Bible. We just think that churches, especially conservative churches, have interpreted it incorrectly. Okay, So they say, well, you know, we, we believe, Paul. We believe the Bible. We just think that you've misunderstood Paul. So when Paul talks about the man is the head of the woman, they say, ah, oh, it doesn't have anything to do with authority. It's source. 
So now, when you think, if you use that term, the kephale of a river, there's a sense in which there's, that's the source of the river, and see, that's where they go with this. The only thing is, well, we're not talking about a river, uh, but it even could just mean not authority, but it, that's the start of the river. That's where it all came from. But think about if Jesus is the head over all things, it's not that He's the source. That's not the idea. Because in Ephesians 1, there toward the end when He's talking about that, what he, His point is, is that Jesus is the authority. He has authority over all things. Right? And, and so that's what Paul means by head. And when we get to Ephesians 5.22 and following, we're going to see that head has that same idea. It's the idea of authority, not source. And what he's doing here, using this term kephale in Greek, head, is he's using the metaphor of the body. Okay, And so you think about our head and then our body. The head is the head, the source of the body. You know, so when you're first conceived or born, are you just a head? And then, then that is the source of the body. No, it doesn't work that way. Okay? God creates your whole body, you know, and, and it all grows at one time. The, the head is not the source. The head, rather, is, um, it <clears throat> rules over the body and directs the body. And so that's where we have, you know, our, our brain, where it's the command center. And, and it directs the body as to, you know, there's the unconscious stuff that happens. That, it, you know, it's keeping our heart beating and keeping us breathing and our blood pumping and everything like that. And everything working the way it's supposed to. And then there's the, the stuff that's more obvious where, okay, I'm using, I'm talking now, I'm using my hands. And, you know, but my brain is directing that. Okay, because it is the, it has the rule over my body. So, thinking about praying in a tongue and prophesying. If a woman, in, the, in light of this, this headship, so there is, in the assembly, her husband sitting next to her, or even if it's in a small group, which is the way it would have been, I think, back then, and God gives her tongues, or get the gift of tongues, and he gives her a tongue just as they had back then to speak. Chapter 14, a, a big part of tongues was where a person's sin was called out, and they're rebuked there, and they're convicted. And they would hear in their own language this message from God. It's not the woman's message, but it's from God, but it's a direct revelation from God that she receives and then speaks, and she speaks it in that man's language, Okay. And, and so it, that's something to, just like Acts 2, where it stands out. It's like, wow, we hear them speaking in our own language, our own tongue. Okay, So, do you see the problem? If God gives her a message that is for maybe her husband to rebuke him, well, now is she his authority? Is she his head? And that's why Paul says she has to have authority on her head. Okay, if that were to happen. Or let's say that she has a rebuke for one of the other men in the in the small group gathering, the prayer meeting or something like that. Okay? Again, now is she his authority? And so this covering was designed to it, Paul literally calls it a, it's not I know our translations say a symbol of authority, but it, literally it's it she has authority on her head. 
Okay, that rec- she's recognizing that while this tongue, this message from God came from her to through her to one of the men, she does not have authority. She recognizes she doesn't have authority over him. Prophecy would be the same thing. Okay, so prophecy there may be a rebuke, admonishing, encouragement, instruction. You know, prophetic messages in that day. And you think about, why did they have that? Well, they didn't have the completed New Testament canon yet. They were still in the process. It was still being written in these day, in this day and, and recognize which, which letters fit, you know, which gospel accounts do we, you know, are part of scripture. And, and all of that was still ongoing. And they didn't have a completed canon yet. And so God, would often minister to the people because they didn't, they couldn't say, okay, now turn to 1 Corinthians 11. It couldn't do that. And so God would give a message to someone, whether it was in the assembly or maybe even a small group setting, for an individual or for the church, you see. And so if a woman is speaking in a tongue or she's prophesying, getting a, receiving a message from God, which that did happen. Women did you know, sometimes have spoken tongues or they had the gift of prophecy. And that might be something that was a rebuke or or some instruction for a man or men. She had to have her head covered, authority on her head, where it's saying that she recognizes that she isn't their authority, that God is just using her as his mouthpiece in that day to speak these messages. Okay, so I think that's that's what's going on here. That's why we have this whole thing about head coverings, but also why I don't believe that it's something that we have to practice today. So what Paul does in this passage then is he gives two examples of this principle of headship and submission. And these examples establish the principle of order, headship, and submission. And so, what he's saying is that headship and submission are not unique to the marriage relationship. That's not the only time you find headship and submission. And so, he gives two more examples. Look at verse 3 again. So, 1 Corinthians 11, verse 3. He says, but I, I want you to understand that... Christ is the head of every man, and the man is the head of a woman, and God is the head of Christ. And so, right in the middle of that verse, it's sandwiched between these other two examples, is the principle that he's talking about here. Why they needed head coverings in that day in those small group settings is that the man is the head of a woman, okay? But what's going on here is he gives two examples to say, okay, ladies, I want you to understand, you know, we're not here to, to pick on you and single you out because headship and submission happens elsewhere too. It happens, first of all, <clears throat> with Christ being the head of every man. And what, what I think he's talking about here is that Christ is the head of every human being. I don't think he's talking about Christ is the head of the husband. Okay, a lot of times we take it that way. And, and we think that's what he's saying here. But he says he's the, Christ is the head of every man. And so you can think, um, you know, the Ephesians one twenty two I referred to earlier, Matthew 28.18, all authority has been given to me, Jesus said, Hebrews 2.8. Philippians 2, 10, and 11, you have these passages where it it tells us that Christ has authority over everyone, believer and unbeliever alike. 
You know, so some folks will take this as uh, just men, but most in, in our circles, in conservative reform circles, we take it as either the church, that he's the head of the church, which is true, but it's probably more broadly that Christ is the head of every human being, believer and unbeliever alike. Okay. Then the second example he gives at the end of verse 3 is that God is the head of Christ. Okay, so I'm going to have to get a little technical here with you because this is out there. As you read stuff, you're going to read about this, okay? And so you just have to bear with me for a little bit. And I'll try to make it clear. Um, <clears throat> sometimes we look at this and we see a hierarchy. So there's God the Father, God the Son, man, and woman. Okay, and sometimes we see it that way. And some of those who hold that, not everybody... They, they hold to what they call the eternal functional submission of the Son. Sometimes it's just called eternal submission of the Son, okay? But we can throw in there this idea of the eternal functional because most of us evangelicals would say that Christ or the Son of God in His essence, as His divine essence, is not subordinate to the Father, Okay? in His divine essence. Otherwise, they wouldn't be one. Okay? <clears throat> but, so we will supply that word functional. Okay? While the functional submission, we're going to talk about that here, the functional submission of Christ is what Paul's talking about. Is it eternal? Okay? So that's where we're going to try to go with this. And so try to, try to hang in there with me. <clears throat> Paul is saying here that Christ submits to God the Father. But is that eternal? Is Christ's submission to the Father eternal? In other words, has it always been that way in eternity past? And is it going to be that way all the way into eternity future? I don't think so. Um, and and there, there's a lot of... These are hard passages, right? I mean, you're probably getting it already. Like, okay, you're losing me here. You know. This is tough. And there are different views, and as I'm going to share in a little bit, we shouldn't let this be contentious, okay? We need to be understanding toward one another, and just and try to work through these things, but to, to be understanding, okay? <clears throat> Godly people hold these different views that I'm sharing here. Um, Paul doesn't say that it's God the Son in His divine essence, His divine nature that is subordinate to the Father, or that the Father is the head of Christ in His divine essence. He says, rather, it is literally the Christ. God, that is the Father, is the head of the Christ. Okay? Literally. It is Jesus as the Messiah. Jesus in his work of redemption that he's talking about here. That's where, where that word functional comes in. Okay, so Jesus in this larger history, a time of where he would come and live among, uh, among us on the earth, die in our place, rise again, and then in this period while we're waiting for everything to be put un into subjection under his feet... During that whole period of redemption and, and restoration, 
that this is this takes place. So it's only functional. It's not his essence. So do you see what I'm saying? So it's like in his being, in his essence, the Son of God is not subordinate to God the Father. Okay. And, and there's some people that hold some hold a little differently, and that's okay. But I don't think that's what he's saying here. When Christ's work of redemption and restoration are finally complete, what it appears that Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians 15.28 is that within the Trinity, what has always been will always be. And so this functional aspect of Christ's ministry, of Jesus as the Christ... It says he will deliver all things up to him who subjected him. And there you're thinking in God the Trinity. And he says they will be all in all. And everything just goes, in a sense, back to the way it was. In other words, this functional element that's true right now of the Christ. One day that will be done. Okay, and the Trinity will be only as they've always been. Okay, and they won't have this functional difference or distinction, if you will. Okay, now, if I completely lost you and you want to read some more on this, there's other stuff you can read. A good thing, good place to start would be uh, MacArthur and Mayhew's uh, biblical doctrine, their systematic theology, and I've given it to you there at the bottom. You can on the pages and you can read that. Read the footnotes too. So that'll be a little bit more helpful. Okay, I hope. So I wanted to address that because that's a hot topic in this whole issue of. Um, the role of men and women is is the role of the difference between men and women in their roles is that tied to the nature of God in the Trinity. See what I'm saying? So do we say, well, the woman submits to the man because that's rooted in the Trinity that Jesus submits to the Father and the Spirit submits to both of them? Okay, is that what this is saying? And I don't think it is. Okay. So, what we have in, or we don't have in 1 Corinthians 11.3, I don't think is a hierarchy of God the Father, God the Son, or Christ, and then man, and then woman. I don't think that's what he's doing here. But rather, if we go to the next slide, this, I think, is really what's going on here. Is that you have, right in the middle there, sandwiched in the verse, is the principle of that the man is the head of the woman. That's, what, that's where he's going with this. Okay, and then you have on the at the beginning and at the end of verse three, sandwiching that principle are two examples: Christ is the head of every person, and God is the head of Christ. Okay, so completely lose everybody. So all right, so okay. Well, now wake up, and and we're going to move on with a, and talk about a couple of the principles to take out of this. Okay, so <clears throat> note. Paul's warning at the end of this section, 11.16. But if, anyone, if, if one is inclined to be contentious, we have no other practice, nor have the churches of God. Okay? So don't allow these issues to cause contention among us, to cause division in the church. Respect the different beliefs. Now, there's some beliefs that we say, no, that's not okay, and, and if you're going to be in this church, that you can't hold that. Okay? So, like, if, if you believe that a woman can preach, okay, no, that's not okay. No, no, that's not what I'm talking about. It, but if it's some of these minor things about, you know, what we just talked about, that we're, I put you all to sleep, ESS, um, okay, let's bear with each other and don't be contentious about it. Or even with the head coverings, especially. 
Okay, and sadly, that passage, people use it to be contentious, and they divide churches over it, and that is not okay. Paul rebukes that here. Okay, don't allow this to bring contention into our church family. So Paul's concern, as we wrap up for First Corinthians eleven, Paul's concern here in eleven two through sixteen is that a woman should demonstrate by her femininity that she accepts the order God established at creation. That's what the whole head covering was, the hair length. That's what he's getting at here. And I know I had, I had to give it to you in a real nutshell there. Um, <clears throat> but she should demonstrate by her femininity that she accepts the order God established at creation. In that day, it was extremely important because a woman might deliver a message from God that rebukes or instructs a man. And she had to recognize and understand that I'm not your head. God just gave me, I was a mouthpiece, he gave me a message, but I understand I'm not your head. Okay. Today, when, you know, ladies, you still need to have that same attitude. You still need to have that femininity that shows that, okay, I understand I am not the head of any man. And that, that I can't instruct you in the worship service. I can't instruct you in that in a group setting. And I'm going to have a little more to talk about this in a minute, so kind of hang in there. Now, let's talk quickly about 1 Corinthians 14. What's going on in in 1 Corinthians 12 through 14 is Paul is dealing with another issue that they wrote about. And they had questions about the spiritual gifts. And so he's dealing with abuses of various spiritual gifts, typically, as I said earlier, tongues and prophecy. Okay, so the reason we're going there is that women are, he says, to remain silent in the assembly. They're not to have leading roles. So turn over to to 1 Corinthians 14 if you haven't yet. And we're just going to, we're going to look quickly at this. So verses 34 and 35. Paul says, Let the women keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but let them subject themselves just as the law also says. And if they desire to learn anything, let them ask their own husbands at home, for it is improper for a woman to speak in church. So you can see how that kind of puts to rest the whole idea of praying and prophesying in the head coverings as applying to the church service. It doesn't, because women wouldn't have been allowed to do those things in the church service. Now, what some people do is they say, okay, this this passage here, verse 34, 35... It only has to do with women evaluating prophecy. Okay, so look at verse 29. This is where they get that. Verse 29, And let two or three prophets speak, and let the others pass judgment. In other words, to evaluate prophecies that are spoken. And so what they're saying is that, okay, all this is talking about when it says women aren't to speak in church, it really only means that whenever you know someone, a man or a woman, might speak a prophecy, which we've already said women shouldn't, in the service. But if a man speaks a prophecy, then the other men were supposed to evaluate it. And a woman shouldn't be allowed to say, well, wait a minute, that doesn't line up with what God taught us back in, you know, and then quote scripture. They said that's the only thing it's talking about. And I don't think it is. Okay. <clears throat> you see, what they say is if that's all it's talking about, then in the worship service, women should be able to lead in prayer. They should be able to read Scripture. And some of them will take from that that they should be able to preach. Okay? So we, we this is important. That's why we have to talk about it. 
However, Paul's instruction here in verses 34 and 35 is not limited to the topic of evaluating prophecy. And let me show you verse 26 through 33. Look at all that he's talking about here. What is the outcome then, brethren, when you assemble? Each one has a psalm. Somebody's sharing a psalm. Has a teaching, has a revelation, has a tongue, has an interpretation. Let all things be done for edification. If anyone speaks in a tongue, it should be by two or at the most three, and each in turn, and let one interpret. But if there's no interpreter, let him keep silent in the church, and let him speak to himself and to God. There's that praying in tongues, right? And let two or three prophets speak. And let the others pass judgment to evaluate them. But if a revelation is made to another who's seated, let the first keep silent. For you can all prophesy one by one, so that you all may learn and all may be exhorted. And the spirits of prophets are subject to prophets. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints. And so, see, he's talking about a lot of different things. And then he goes into verses 34 and 35. You see, in 34 and 35, aren't even right after verse 29, right? You've got 30, 31, 32, 33, okay? And so he's talking about a lot more. This is These are broad principles, or a broad principle that he gives us in 34 and 35. This is a, these, it's a general principle that applies to any of these activities. And think about what he says in 34 and 35. So verse 34, he says this four different ways, Okay? Let the women keep silent in the churches. Second, for they're not permitted to speak. Third, but let them subject themselves. That's 34. Now, verse 35, the fourth one. It is improper for a woman to speak in church. Okay? So, you see, this is a general principle that he's given. And it applies to everything. Okay? Of all of the speaking of women. Now, we're going to talk about what exactly does that mean in a minute. But he's saying for a woman to do that, it's improper. That means it's shameful. It's disgraceful. So, for churches to have women preaching, that's he would say, Paul would say that's disgraceful. God finds it disgraceful. You know, if they lead in worship and those kinds of things, it's disgraceful. It applies to all the churches. And this is a part of what he's talking about in verses 33 and 40, doing everything properly and in an orderly manner. <clears throat> so, is this a new thing that Paul has come up with? A new idea? No, he goes back to, guess where? The beginning. And he says <clears throat> that he goes back to the law. Okay, and, and so <clears throat> what he means by that <clears throat> is at, at the end of verse 34, he says, just as the law also says. He's talking about Genesis 1 and 2. He's talking about the original design of God where he laid these things out, that the, the principle of male headship, which means that the women are to be submissive to their husband. Okay? And so what Paul does is he doesn't just go back to somewhere in the Old Testament. He goes all the way back to the beginning where the foundation is being laid because what he's doing here is he's saying, these are the principles that we're going to build on. This is the foundation that I'm building on here. So when I say that the women aren't to speak in church, I'm, I'm building on God's original design. So then it's not cultural. It's not temporary. It's based on God's original design. Since God created men and women with order, the same order must be followed in the church. Now, 
he adds, and in Greek, verse 35 begins with the word and. Some translations leave that out. But he's adding, in addition to what I've been talking about, if women have questions, so it's like, you know, here as, as I'm teaching, if, if one of you ladies had a question, you know, well, hey, hang on a second, John. Now, what do you mean by, well, you know, and he said, no, it's not okay. And, of course, you know, guys don't do that either. But um, <clears throat> he says if they want to ask questions about something they're hearing in the worship service and teaching, they should wait and ask their husbands at home. Okay, guys, you know, we've been talking, you know, the ladies here, okay, talking about being quiet and everything. What about the guys? Well, here you go. Okay, guys, this requires men to be pursuing an accurate understanding of God's Word. You get that? One of your jobs, men, is to always be pursuing an accurate understanding of God's Word. You should be able to either answer your wife's questions or know how to find the answers. Men, I want you to hear this. God's design of headship puts a sobering responsibility on us. We have to study God's Word. We should encourage discussion in the home. That's what he's he's implying here. Okay. Wives, if you are godly and wise, you will give him room to grow. This, I know, requires patience, humility, and often quietness. My mom had a godly testimony in this. Um, to start out in their marriage, mom knew way more Bible than my dad did. He, he couldn't have quoted any verses. And she grew up in Sunday school and everything. She knew her Bible really well. But she never paraded her knowledge. She was humble, and she sought to win him without a word rather than preaching to him. Think First Peter 3. And when God saved my dad, he was an entirely new creature. He could not study his Bible enough. And kind of I were talking how, you know, when we would go over to visit them, that you walk in the door, and if dad wasn't working out in his shop, he was in his recliner, and he had his Bible and his books, and he was studying and in the evenings, that's what he did. He studied, and he studied, and he studied. He eventually became a respected adult Sunday school teacher. And he was someone who knew his Bible well. So, man, that's our challenge. So, together with what we're going to look at next week, First Timothy 2, we see this. Here's a principle for us. Women are not to have a leading or exhorting role in the assembly or wherever men are present. They should not have a leading or exhorting role. Okay, so silent, not speaking. Does that mean that you ladies shouldn't have been singing? Or you shouldn't do body life? Does it mean... No. Women should participate heartily in singing. All the saints, remember we saw back in earlier in chapter 5 of Ephesians, they are to be uh, speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, Ephesians 5.19. Women can give a testimony. They can give a ministry update in body life as long as they're not exhorting the men. And I know, ladies, you get tempted because you get excited because what God's doing in your life and you want to say, oh, all of you, you know, you, you men too, you need to... Okay, the, you went too far, okay? So that that's where you're not your role is not to exhort 
in the in the, serve, in the worship service. Okay, um, now you can say that to the ladies. Okay, ladies, you need to do this. But um, what about when we come to prayer meetings? Well, women shouldn't lead the prayer meeting if men are there. Um, but, and it's the view of our church, that you may pray aloud if you're comfortable doing that, uh, ladies. Um, but please respect the views of, of others, of some of the ladies that, and their husbands even, that they don't believe that that's appropriate for a woman, and that's okay. okay re- let's respect them and not pressure them and try to get them to go against their conscience, because some don't believe that a woman should pray aloud in a mixed company. Ladies, be encouraged to engage in discussion in small groups, ask questions, learn, contribute to our understanding of the Bible. And in private meetings, a woman may join her husband in explaining biblical truth, just as Priscilla did with her husband Aquila. So when we're talking about those mixed situations like that between men and women, there is a place and and a woman can join her husband and do that. Okay. Well, as we come to the Lord's table, we said earlier that God is the head of Christ. In he in First uh, Corinthians eleven three, I want to read a related passage from Hebrews ten. That talks about that, where Jesus as the Christ was, he submitted to the will of the Father. And his will was to obey his Father. Uh, Hebrews 10, verse 5. Therefore, when he, Jesus, comes into the world, the Messiah comes into the world, he says, Sacrifice and offering you, God, have not desired, but a body you've prepared for me. In whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, and again, Jesus talking here, Behold, I have come in the role of the book it is written of me to do your will, O God. And then verse 10, By this will that... that Jesus as the Christ submitted to God. By this will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And then verse 14. For by one offering he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. He came to do God's will. He submitted himself to God's will. By that act of submission, he saved us. The world looks at headship and submission as ugly things, and sometimes they're used in ugly ways. But they're not bad in in and of themselves, because when Jesus, as the Christ, submitted himself to his Father, this was the most beautiful thing ever. And by submitting his will to the Father, he has saved us.